Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to verse 32. These are the verses we are looking at this evening. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. This evening I want to speak to you about the call of the cross. The call of the cross. By the cross, of course, I mean the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question we are asking this evening is this. How should we, as followers of Jesus, respond to the truth of the cross? And to help us answer this question, this important question, I want to spend a few moments just looking at verse 30 to verse 32 in Mark. Now, um, you may think we, of course, been looking at the cross so many times already. In fact, uh, two sermons ago, I preached on the cross. So we've had a lot of sermon on the cross. But it's an important question. And the Lord wants to look, us to look at this again because that's how he's written the book of Mark. Now, you remember that the Lord Jesus and his disciples have just finished their work in Caesarea Philippi. And they are now firmly on their journey southwards. So they've been north and they're just heading now southwards. And the heart of Jesus now is set on the cross. He's heading southwards. Why? Because he's headed to Jerusalem to die for our sins on the cross. And as he's heading south now from Mount Hermon versus Caesarea Philippi, heading south, northeast of Galilee, he's passing through northeast of Galilee as it were. And while he's passing through there, uh, he wants to remind his disciples again of the cross. And I've said, He's already been talking about it as he's coming down the mountain. He's already talked about it in chapter 8. He's going to actually talk about it soon again. There will be a lot of talking about the cross. And we read those words, isn't it? In verse 30 to verse 31, what his message is now, what he's focused on. Let's just read uh, verse 31 again. He says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. The key phrase there uh, at, is at the start uh, of verse 31, really, isn't it? For he was teaching his disciples. Uh, in other words, the Lord Jesus here in these verses is not just spewing out loosely assembled facts. He is imparting a core truth that they and us need to live by. He wants us to answer the call of the cross on our lives. And so the question I want to ask is, what does it look like for us to live in light of the cross? How does it look like to be people that know of the cross? Well, there are three practical directions this passage gives us, and they're in front of you in your outline. What does it mean for us to live in light of the cross. The first thing, just briefly, I want to, we see there, the first point, is that we must learn the cross. We must learn the cross. Jesus wants all his followers to have a handle on the basic facts 
of his coming into the world and suffering for us. What does it mean to learn the cross? Well, it's here, isn't it? First of all, Lord Jesus wants us to learn that he has come to die. Notice in verse 31, twice in this verse, he says he's going to be killed. And they will kill him, it says there. And then he goes on to say, when he's killed after three days, he will rise. The interesting thing is at the beginning of, of 31, he says, for he was teaching himself, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. The interesting thing is that actually the person who is going to be killed is the Son of Man. Jesus himself as a title is using now throughout Mark. From now on, he's just going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And this title, as you know, is from Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, which we have read a number of times. And one of the things we've mentioned about this title of the Son of Man is that it means that Jesus is a full human being. He's 100% human. He's 100% God, but yes, he's also 100% human. And Jesus is not only 100% human, he's the perfect human being without sin. And this perfect human being, Jesus says, is going to be killed by fellow human beings. The Son of Man will be killed by man. There's, in fact, when you read those words in Aramaic, there's a play on words there. Literally. The Son of Man will be killed by man. Evil Cain will kill righteous Abel. The death of Jesus, if you like, was the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. Humanly speaking, it is the worst tragedy in history. It shows us just how utterly broken humanity is. We murdered the, pers- the only perfect person who has ever lived. And as I thought about this reality that Jesus died and he was killed by sinners... It gave me, a, I realized just how sobering this is. It is a sobering reality, isn't it? That in order to be comfortable in this world, you must be subhuman. Right? The world can't handle a real human being, a perfect human being. Because confronted with a perfect human being, what we did is killed him. So the first thing we have to understand about the cross is that Jesus died a real death. Secondly, Jesus also wants us to know that he has come to be buried. Don't miss that in verse 31. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, we often gloss over the fact that Jesus was not just killed, but he was buried for three days. We gloss over that. But it's actually the burial of Christ is central to his mission. When was the last time you heard a sermon about the burial of Christ? We gloss over that fact. We gloss over the fact that for three days, according to our Jews' count days, Jesus lay in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. In his death, as in his birth, he remained poor. That's what the burial of Christ immediately strikes us with. When he was born, he was placed in the borrowed stone feeding trough. In his death, he was placed in the borrowed stone tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. If you like, the rock of ages, who was clear for us for three days, laid tenderly in a tomb to wait his decomposition. This is the crucial fact of the cross of Christ. 
Jesus wants us to know that his physical death was real and total. Why? Because he came to live as one of us from the womb to the tomb. So the second thing we need to know is that Jesus was buried. And finally, Jesus here wants us to know that he has come to rise from the dead. Verse 31, doesn't it? It hangs like that. When he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Beloved, we hear this stuff so many times, we lose interest, don't we? But we need to let that fact sink in a little bit. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. It is a shocking claim to make. Throughout history, of course, there have been many leaders and prophets and thinkers and scientists who made many great claims in life. But once they got into the grave, they couldn't climb out. All of them. But Jesus is saying he's different from everyone else who's lived in history because not only will his body be preserved, you need to meditate on the burial of Christ. Somehow during that time, Jesus believes his body once it's crucified, it's not just going to be tossed off somewhere, it's going to be preserved in the tomb, not just preserved in the, in the tomb as it were, but after three days, the tomb itself will be empty. And of course, all of us are here, isn't it? Because history tells us that this prediction of Jesus came true. Jesus rose from the grave. Why? Because he was too big for death to hold him down. Death could not hold him. And the facts of our Lord's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are the cornerstone of our faith. In Christ, aren't they? These are the facts that Jesus wants us to learn. He wants us to learn them. He wants us to confess them. He wants us to meditate on them. He doesn't want us to find this stuff boring at all. And one of the best ways for us to ensure we are doing that is to get in the habit of memorizing some of the historic creeds of the early church. You know, the very notion, the very reality of Jesus dying, being buried, rising, consumed the early church. It consumed them so much, these facts of history, that they, the first four councils in the early church were taken up with these facts. And the church fathers decided to write down just those facts, which you, you may think, well, I've read them so many times. They decided to write them out so that every Sunday morning when they met, they would recite them. When they go to bed, they would recite them. And sadly, many of us who profess faith in Jesus can't even properly, we find some of this stuff boring, but we can't even recite some of the historic creeds in the church. And is it a little surprise then that our thought of Jesus is so low when the death, burial, and resurrection that is articulated in the creeds is missing from our daily memorization and confession. I want to encourage you as you look at these facts of the resurrection, of his death, of his burial, to, to make it an aim in life, I think, to memorize and confess some of these historical creeds that helps you to remember these basic facts. 
And I think you can start with the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? Which was composed in the year 390. Listen to what the Apostles' Creed says. Listen to its focus of what it is saying. It says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic, it means the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And once you know that and you memorize that and you pray through that, it's reminding you the gospel continuously of these facts, isn't it? Then you can move on to the Nicene Creed. I'll leave that for you to look it up. The point is that as followers of Jesus, we must keep the death, burial, and resurrection front and center of our theology. And as a church, everyone, I think, should understand not only these facts, but some of the historical creeds being able to recite them. Our children in Sunday school must understand this and must be taught and should be able to know these basic facts. Why is that? Because it helps us to apply the second practical direction this passage teaches us. And it is this. We must love the cross. So how should we respond to the cross? First of all, we must learn the cross. Secondly, we must love the cross. And loving the cross, beloved, comes from learning and being, memorizing, confessing the cross. Uh, Jesus wants his followers here to recognize that his impending suffering is not a tragedy, but something they should come to know and cherish. Their time should be consumed with thinking about the cross. And we know this because the first time Jesus mentioned the cross, Peter took him aside, isn't it, and rebuked him. But listen to how Jesus responded to him sharply in Mark 8, verse 33. Remember that in Mark 8, verse 33, Jesus said this to Peter, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The death the burial, the resurrection, those are the things of God. And Jesus wants us to set our minds on those things. He wanted Peter to set his mind on those things and his friends. And sadly, nothing has changed since chapter 8. Mark here tells us that the disciples are failing to come to terms with the cross. Look at verse 32 there. This is verse 32. How do they react to what Jesus says? Well, verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying. Of course, I could repeat my joke from this morning that Jesus is struggling here as a preacher, isn't it? And uh, as I read this, I was very comforted. Of course, I would be as a pastor. Jesus still, all his great sermon, he can't get through to them. And it's very humbling, isn't it? Because what we consider a good sermon is, by, by our standard, Jesus is a complete failure. We would, wouldn't we? What we would regard as a good sermon, Jesus is failing here. But of course, Jesus isn't failing because Jesus has a different metric for measuring what a good sermon is. 
Verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying. You know, the original word for did not understand means that the meaning of what Jesus has said has escaped them. They are not on the same page with Jesus. And actually, this is the only place in all of Mark where the word is used. It's not used in reference to the crowd. It's not used in reference to the Pharisees. It is actually used in reference to the disciples themselves. They are not on the same page with Jesus. Why is Mark saying this? Well, Mark is saying this because... The disciples should understand. Should understand what Jesus is talking about. They should know that the whole point of Jesus coming was to lay down his life for them and us. But they don't get it. Listen, it's not that they haven't got the facts. They haven't left the cross. Actually, they have. Because Peter understood Jesus is going to die. And that's why he tried to stop him. It's like, this is not the way of glory. Come on, you can't be talking about these things. So they know the facts, but they haven't fallen in love with the cross. The issue is that they do not appreciate the value of the cross. So when we see that the disciples are not understanding, what Mark is really getting at is that they have not come to embrace the plan. They don't love the idea of Jesus dying, being buried, and rising to life. That's not the Messiah yet they want. They want a Messiah, but not just that one. And the reason Mark starts in verse 32, notice there's a key word in verse 32, but. In other words, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, in verse 31, into the hands of men and they'll kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he'll rise. But they did not understand the same. In other words, they are at variance with what Jesus is thinking. It is indicating that Mark believes Jesus actually wants his followers to love and appreciate the cross, but we don't. Why, why does Jesus want us to love the cross? Because the cross is not a man's idea. The cross is God's very good idea. And look again at verse 31 there. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You need to pause there on that sentence and just take that in. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, we've already spoken of the Son of Man as fully human. But Jesus also wants us to remember that the Son of Man is fully God. Because in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, the whole image is of the Son of Man coming to reign. He's fully God. So what Jesus is reminding us here is that the cross is so precious. Why is it so precious? Because it is God willingly giving himself to be killed by sinful man. And Jesus inserts this in verse 31, doesn't he? The Son of Man is going to be delivered. If you actually have the King James Version or others, you read the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. That's not really a good fitting illustration, a fitting translation. The ESV here is definitely better. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. And this is passively silent. It's, it's indicating to us that it is God delivering. God is the, is, is the agent behind this delivering. It, the Son of Man is God and is going to be delivered. Who's delivering him? Well, it is God himself. That's what makes the cross precious. Humanly speaking, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas Iscariot to those who would then murder him. But there is another Andover, isn't there? <laughs> the Andover is the one we read about in Isaiah 53, verse 6. 
And Jesus has read about it. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus wants us to understand and appreciate that this handover is by God the Father. God the Father is handing over the Son to sinful man so that man may nail the Son to the cross. So that man may do whatever they want with his Son. As they please to borrow the language he used in relation to John the Baptist. Beloved, I, in honesty, wept when I read this verse. When, I, when it sunk in for me that God the Father decided to hand God the Son, who is fully God, in the hands of sinful men for men to do that which men want to do. Whatever men dream of. Because immediately I thought of this issue and I thought to myself, I can never sacrifice my daughter for anyone. And I would consider my position a moral one. Why should I give up that which is I treasure and love? For who? But here I see God giving up his son. And I tremble at the thoughts of the Lord God, the creator of the universe, doing this to his own beloved son. To do, to allow sinful man to take his son who's fully God and, and, and throw on him all their best instinct, abuse, use him. Whatever atrocities they decide, and we know from history that we human beings whipped, taunted, wounded Jesus all the way to Golgotha. And on that cross, they stripped him naked, didn't they? And then they nailed him to the cross. And then you remember that that person is God, the Son. And then I look at the cross, and he says to me, God loves me so much. He crushed his own son for me. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Too good to be true. And yet that is the gospel. The gospel is that fantastic. It is beyond what man can imagine. It is sensational. Because the cross of Jesus is the love of God made known to all who God has called to himself. And those who know Jesus, beloved, those who know Jesus, they have been changed inside. They have, they have seen what, who they were, what Christ has done for them, and, and what it means for Jesus to die on that cross. When they think of all of those things, they can't help but love the cross. They can't help but be captured by it. Weep at the thought of the cross sometimes even. They, be, they become people who love the cross. What does a person who loves the cross of Christ look like? The person who loves the cross of Christ, you see, never forgets that at one time she was an object of God's holy and just wrath. She never forgets that Christ came into the world to save sinners 
And she feels along with Paul that she's the chief of sinners. The worst of sinners. And yet as she thinks with Paul she's the worst of sinners, she looks at Christ, she ponders God dying for her there. She sees that he was made to be seen when you know sin. That he has paid the price for our sin. See, a person who loves the cross never forgets that Jesus bore his sins in his own body and that the wrath of God which she should have borne was poured all on Jesus. All of it. Every single drop. None left for her. The person who loves the cross never forgets that Jesus did not just die to give her peace and a purpose in life. Sort of like, I've saved you. Here are ten points to make your life better. No. She remembers that Jesus died to save her from God himself. From the very wrath of God. She never forgets that she was once polluted. Covered with all kinds of filth and spiritual stench of sin in thought, word, and deed. She never forgets that. But yet she remembers the blood of Jesus was the sacrifice before God that wiped every debt of sin before God. Past, present, future. And she knows now, no matter what mess is going on in her life, she stands radiant, spotless, accepted before God. That's what the cross does. That's what the love of the cross does. She never forgets that when Jesus was buried, she was buried with him to her old life. And that when he rose, she rose with him to new life. A person who loves and who learns and loves the cross never forgets these precious truths. They are ever present on our mind. And those who love this truth, of course, cannot help themselves but do what? Live for the cross every day, isn't it? And that's our final practical direction here. Jesus wants us to learn the cross. Secondly, as we learn the cross, we come to love the cross, right? As we love the cross, what? What then do we do? We live the cross. That's the third point. We must then live the cross. Notice Mark says the ignorance of the disciples here is mixed with fear. Did you notice that in verse 32? But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Why are they afraid to talking to Jesus about this? Well, because they don't want to know. <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you, you, you don't know everything, but you know enough and you're like, I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to know more. Is, I know what I need to know now. I'm not going to discuss more of this. They are like that. There is a part of them that, that want to know and there is a part of them that just refusing to face up to what's following Jesus all the way to the cross will mean for their lives. I think the reason we don't spend time to study the cross is because sooner or later we'll find out that the cross means our own death. And therefore we're not interested in knowing more. Even for people who have come to faith in Christ, they stop short of the full implication. The disciples here are followers of Jesus and they're worried that they may actually die with them physically and they're not interested uh, what Mark is getting at is that they are willfully refusing to make the cross the center of their work. They don't want to leave Mark 8, verse 34. Do you remember Mark 8, verse 34, when Jesus said to them, Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples in Mark 8, verse 34, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They don't want that. And that's the key, isn't it, in verse 31. The but, as I said, of verse 32 there. 
But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus is saying, meet me at Golgotha. They are like, we are are not sure about that. We are not sure about that. They don't understand that Christ died on the cross, yes, to save us from sin, but much deeper than that, to create comrades. You only get this from certain political parties. Comrades, right? But I think that's a good word. I was thinking of a better one. He died to create comrades. You see, all who trust Jesus must take their own cross to follow our crucified Lord. We, 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 we must now reject ourselves and take on the crucified life of Jesus. That's what David Bonhoeffer said, isn't it? When Christ bids a man, what? He bids him to come and die. Right? You see, every follower of Jesus is a Barabbas and a Simon of Cyrene. You are a Barabbas if you are in Christ because you have escaped judgment, escaped punishment, because Jesus has been crucified in your place, right? That's what makes you a Barabbas. You deserve to be the one dying. Jesus took your place. So you're a Barabbas. But you're also Simon of Cyrene, isn't it? Because like Simon of Cyrene, we carry the cross with Jesus, don't we? Because, to meet Je- because we have met Jesus on the road of Golgotha. Therefore, we are carrying the cross with him. And we are following him. Keep those two images in mind. Barabbas, Simon of Cyrene. Too many Christians think they are Barabbas. I know. Perhaps they don't call it Barabbas. Right? But we need to remember we are also Simon of Cyrene. And leaving out the cross of Christ means renouncing every right to our lives to go our own way. That's what it means to leave the cross. It is doing what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. If you can turn there with me. It's just a single verse, but I want you to read it. And I want you to process it. Galatians 5, verse 24. It says this. Galatians 5, verse 24. Paul says this in very few words. Some of you know this already by heart. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and and his designs. Now, what you might not know is that this image is truly gruesome. What Paul has in mind here is like taking a hammer and nails and then fastening our flesh to the cross with the hammer and nail. He's saying, We are the ones doing it though, that's the issue. We have crucified, we've taken our flesh taken the armor, and we have nailed every bit of flesh to the cross. The Puritans call what Paul is talking about mortification. It is sustained, determined, nailing of ourselves to the cross. By the power of the Spirit, we are putting to death whatever is ungodly in us. Why are we doing that? Because so that through dying to ourselves, we may grow to deeper fellowship with God. So that we can consider ourselves dead to the world. That is the essence of what 
Jesus wants us to be. People who like, who, who, who have learned the cross. And because we've learned the cross, we have come to love the cross. Because you see, once we love the cross, we see what all God has done. Do you see now that mortification, leaving the cross, nailing it, taking your flesh, nailing it to that cross with the hammer, it's not, well, we want to do it, don't we? Because of the second point, we love the cross. And that's the call of Jesus on every true born-again Christian. It is a hard call, but it is a good life. It is a wonderful life. A life in which we die to ourselves so that the very life of God himself would shine, would empower us and live. And he's saying to each one of us here this evening, there are just two questions Jesus asks. Do you recognize some of this in your life? Are you a person who has come to learn the cross? I think all of us here will say, yes, we've learned the cross. But the beloved, I want to ask you a question. Do you love the cross? Do this stuff excite you even to think about the cross? Are you spending time meditating on the cross? Not because you have to work out at it. Does it come to you because you know what God has saved you from? Well, if the answer is no, then you need to examine your heart to see whether you are truly standing in the faith. If you've seen shades of that in your life, then the third point, doesn't it, is a further encouragement to us. I think many, some of us will say, we love the cross. We know in those moments we have nothing. We have nothing apart from Christ. But the third aspect of living out the cross is very hard. But beloved, the answer then is to go back to the second point of loving the cross, asking the Lord to help us. On our own, we cannot respond to this call of the cross to truly live for him as he wants us to. But by his spirit, we can say with the hymn writer, can't we? What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end, O make me thine forever. And should I be fainting thee, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. Amen.